friends. Welcome to another episode of the So OCD podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Nunnery, and I am thrilled that you guys are here today because you are in for an incredible episode. Last week, I got the chance to chat with Jenna Overbaugh, a licensed professional counselor who specializes in OCD. And y'all, she brought so many facts to this conversation. Not only has Jenna experienced OCD in her own life following the birth of her child, She's an incredible mental health resource, especially for giving us more understanding about OCD from a professional standpoint. And for any of you who haven't been able to find a counselor or who have been to talk therapy and realize you need some more specialized treatment. We talk about all of those things, plus various treatment options, medications, our own experiences with OCD, and much more on today's show. I'm so grateful for Jenna's knowledge and wisdom here, and I know you're going to be just as impressed with her as I am. As usual, we do touch on some issues that are not for little ears, so be sure to consider that as you listen. All right, here is my conversation with Jenna Overbaugh. Hi, Jenna. Thank you for coming on the So OCD podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm super excited to be here, especially I know that you typically have, you know, individuals who struggle with OCD. I'm happy to be here as a counselor who specializes in OCD and also someone who's kind of had a, a rough head of it myself. So super happy to be here. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. I'm glad to have you because I've only had one guest on the inter- on the podcast before as an interview and um, she has OCD. And so I'm really excited to have somebody on who can come at this from a counselor standpoint and offer information about, you know, treatment for OCD and medications, because that's what I get the most um, emails from, uh, or the most emails about are from people who are saying, you know, this has been my experience, or maybe it wasn't so positive, or what do you do? And I know that a lot of listeners are really, either they haven't reached out for help yet, or they have, and it hasn't really gone well. And I think a lot of times that happens because they're not seeing counselors who specialize in OCD. And that's, that makes a huge difference. At least it did for me speaking from experience. It made a huge difference seeing someone who understood the disorder in kind of all the ways that it shows up, um, especially postpartum. And so I'm really excited to hear from you. And um, I would just like you to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners, tell them what your background is and, yeah, that's it. Awesome. Yeah. So I was always kind of an anxious kid. I am still, and I feel like an anxious person, um, but you would never really know. And when I tell people that they are really surprised by that. And I think it's because I've always, without even knowing it. And before certainly I knew about it, I kind of embraced you know, the lifestyle that those need when they're in treatment for anxiety and for obsessive compulsive disorder. So even as a kid, when I would get really anxious about speaking up in class um, or introducing myself to someone new on the first day of school, I would always be the first person to do it. And I remember even at a very, very young age, you know, we were playing heads up, seven up or whatever, like that young. And I remember knowing like, I'm really anxious about this right now, but I need to do it. Like that means I need to do it. I always had an approach mentality when it came to anxiety versus avoid. Um, and that really persists all throughout my like adolescence. And then when I was in college, I learned about 
exposure and response prevention is part of, I think my psych 101 course. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's, I have to do that. Like I, that's everything. That's everything that like, I know that I'm meant to do that. And so when I realized that that kind of lifestyle, you know, approaching your fears and facing your fears is really a really good evidence-based treatment for disorders, which I was, you know, kind of wanting to be a therapist anyway, I really just decided at that point pretty early on, I think like in my freshman year of college to specialize in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so that's really how my passion sparked. And since then I've done nothing but research and clinical work in obsessive compulsive disorder populations. So I always kind of laugh, like ask me about, you know, personality disorders, ask me about substance use. And I don't know as much, but if you were to ask me about OCD, like that's what I've been doing. So, um, so yeah, so I went to Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital and I did an internship there in the children and adolescent unit for OCD and anxiety. And then for the past eight or 10 years, I've been working at Rogers Memorial Hospital um, here in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, which is kind of like the, I've, I've I've been told it's like the Mecca of obsessive compulsive disorder wow. treatment. I worked at the residential center. Uh, so these are individuals who are pretty much the most debilitated that you could possibly get. They lived there for, they were there 24 seven. They were from all over the country, all over the world. Um, they couldn't work because of their OCD. They couldn't function. Um, and they really did need 24 seven care. And then more recently, um, after, you know, feeling like I, I had gotten all that I could out of that experience, even though I was there for a very long time, I'm now full-time therapist at NoCD, which is available to everybody um, just on your app store. It's a free downloadable app on your app store, so NoCD. Um, but we do also offer mobile therapy for people who are wanting that additional service. So, so yeah, that. so I'm super happy to be here. And um, I thought, I mean, transitioning into like my own personal experience, more so with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, you had mentioned like with postpartum in particular, we really need people who specialize in it. And I felt like I was kind of immune to those things. So I have a now three-year-old and when I was pregnant, like four-ish years ago, I felt very ignorant and in hindsight, very naive. Um, I felt like because I knew quote unquote, everything there was to know about anxiety and OCD, I thought that somehow I would be immune to those things, like that that wouldn't happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really rocked pretty heavily when, of course, I have my child. My hormones are crazy. Um, it's a huge life transition. You know, there's an identity crisis, an identity shift for moms. Talk about the two things that OCD hates the most, right? Like it latches on to what you value and it yeah. latches to any, anything that's, so I always call it like the three, the triple hit for moms, anything that's uncertain, OCD, mm -hmm. anything that you feel really responsible for, OCD latches onto that. Anything that you value, OCD latches onto that. Mm -hmm. Add a sprinkling of like a hormonal tornado on top of that and a huge life transition that is becoming a mom and you have a complete recipe for disaster. So yes. I started to really witness my own obsessive compulsive tendencies come out at that point and I struggled for like a year and a half. A lot went into that and we can go into that a little bit later, but yeah, I struggled myself for a year and a half to the, to the point where I wanted to roll out of a moving vehicle. Like I, that was my, it became almost like a depressive fantasy. Like I just didn't want to live that way anymore. And it got to a point where eventually I got help and I 
you know, started seeing my own therapist and, and now I feel like I'm even, I'm even a better mom and a better therapist because of everything that happened. So I love that. Let's unpack. (laughs) I love that you say that though, because I feel the same way. I have OCD all the time, but after my son was born specifically, and I've talked about that here on the podcast, um, he was born in 2019 and I kind of in the same way was, was pretty, um, I was being pretty naive, willingly naive about how difficult that was going to be because I knew I had OCD. I'd already been dealing with it for a long time. I had, it had really amped up after I had my daughter in 2013. And that was when I first started getting, having therapy for it. And my therapist moved away and I got to where I could function because my OCD was directly centered around being with my daughter alone. And so that is, <laughs> that's a part and partial of being a parent is being alone with your kids and taking right. care of your kids. And I wasn't capable of doing it because my OCD was telling me I was going to hurt her. So I went through months of dealing with it by myself and just thinking that I was, you know, sort of crazy, but I, I knew I had OCD already, but I had never had it centered around somebody like that before. And so, um, went through some treatment and, um, that got much better and eventually sort of like what you were saying you did as a child. I kind of did it a lot on my own where I just knew I have to be alone with her. I have to be able to take care of my daughter. I have to be willing to stay at home. And there were still a lot of compulsions happening. I was doing, I was performing a lot of compulsive behavior. Um, like sometimes I would record myself on the, on the phone when I was walking in the house with her, just like a silly video or something. But it was a way for me to be able to go back and reassure myself by watching the video that like nothing bad had happened. And it sounds crazy in hindsight, but in the moment it feels so real. And like, as a therapist, I had heard that on repeat from my clients, patients, members, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. I had heard that on repeat. And so I just, you know, applied the intervention talk, you know, I validated, I educated and I provided them with the ERP and then I was in it myself and I'm like, Oh crap. Like Mm -hmm. this is what it feels like to them. And I remember, I remember I was at the worst of it. I was bargaining with God and I'm not even a very spiritual or religious person, but I was like, God, I will never, Mm -hmm. I will never under underestimate like how much these people struggle ever again. If you just end and what's happening for me. Like I will never. Yeah. So I get it. It really is a real thing. (laughs) I, um, after my son was born, I, I very quickly became suicidal because I was having postpartum depression on top of it. Mm -hmm. And so there was the, I gave birth to him unmedicated. And I remember thinking how incredible it was that physically I felt so normal so quickly. I mean, as soon as he was out in my arms, I was like, Oh, huh. I feel normal. Cool. But by that night, my husband had to go home and take care of our dog. He was going to take the dog to a border so that we could be in the hospital for a day or two. And I remember immediately my brain goes, you can't be left alone with him. You can't, can't leave you alone. You're going to do something bad. And it started and it just spiraled. And every day that we got closer to my husband going back to work, I mean, I was just catatonic with fear. I would just sit and nurse my son in the living room. And I remember we were watching friends just kind of going through the whole series, you know, just kind of background noise. But I remember watching it and just thinking, I just want to like be in the TV right now. Like, I don't want to be here. I feel like 
I'm going to die. And I knew that the time was coming and my brain was telling me having had therapy and gone through, you know, doing exposures and that kind of thing. I knew that I had to be able to face it, but I was so, my hormones were just so out of whack. I was so depressed too. It was just such a dark place to be that I didn't even have the capacity to even try doing exposures because my mood was so depressed. And I finally, I had called around, I had called my midwife and she said, you know, you know, even here in the hospital, like we're, we can't just provide you with medication. So she was trying to give me some um, psychiatrist to call. So I could just, cause I was like, I know I just need to get on some meds so that I can get leveled out emotionally before I can even try doing the exposures. And I had to call around to so many different places, even with good insurance, it was so hard to get what I needed. And I finally called my mom's terrible and that was that was part of my that was part of my passion for like wanting to so I after I got my life together not that I feel like I ever actually got it together I feel like it's like never together but I started a mom group in my community because of all of these issues I remember very specifically looking at my front door and I remember thinking like I have 12 years of experience in this stuff like I have worked at some of the best places in the entire world to treat this. I have a really supportive husband. I have a a good job. Like I have autonomy when it comes to like the choices I need to make. Like there's literally no reason on paper that I should be struggling right now. And if I'm struggling this much, what is happening with these other women? Like I have to help them. And so I started a mom group and it's, we were in person prior to COVID and it was awesome. It's now like 3000 women strong, which is incredible. But I am with you. Like I went, there's so much advocacy that you have to do for yourself. Yes. When you're at like the worst of your worst and. And you don't have the capacity to do it. That's what's so difficult. It's, it's, it's awful. You have to be able to do that. And I had to call my mom's doctor, just her general practitioner and say the, the, um, the receptionist answered and she said, well, you know, he's not taking new patients until November and it was June. And I, I finally got so fed up and I was really proud of myself for advocating for myself this way. And I said, I just had a baby. I am, I have postpartum depression. I already have OCD and it's amped up more right now. I said, I am suicidal. If you don't get me in to see somebody, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Yeah. And so they got me in and God love him. I thought I was going to see a physician's assistant, but he strolled in that room and he sat with me until after the office was closed just talking through medications, listening to everything. He was so kind. And I really credit, you know, his availability to me, even as somebody who is not, you know, a counselor or psychiatrist, you know, uh, this small town doctor who was willing to listen to what I was going through. And I got on medication. I got on Zoloft and an Afronil and, um, an Afronil has just been incredible. And, I was on that for a little while, but I wanted to keep nursing my son. So I stopped that, but that was huge for me. And sometimes I have friends who, um, you know, who've had children and I try to speak openly without, you know, with, I don't want to, you don't want to scare them either. Off onto them. <laughs> right. I don't want to push my fear off onto them, but at the same time, I want to say like, Hey, these kinds of things might happen and this is normal and common. And so, you know, if that happens, like come talk to me, if there's anything going on, like, Let's, let's be open and honest about it because OCD really does just thrive on being, you know, you being isolated and just you're the only one who's going through it. And that's, I think that's why it took me so long to initially get help because I just, 
I didn't know anything about what was happening to me. And I was just especially with motherhood, right? Like there's so much in society and in our culture, like it's love at first sight. And mm-hmm. I love being alone with my baby. I don't want to go back from maternity leave. Like we don't, it's, it's difficult to say the real thing. Yeah. Um, and I felt like in my motherhood experience, everyone had set me up to fail. Like everyone told me that it was amazing and that it would be so easy and that I would be so bored on maternity leave and that I would never want to leave my baby. And so when my reality didn't meet that at all, and I finally did speak up there. I, I found some people who were like, yeah, that happened to me too. And I was well, why, where were you? Like, where right. were you before? Like you set me up with these expectations and it's not anyone in particular, it's society in general. Like yes. it just the setting up of these ridiculous expectations. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot for moms. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time that I realized that what I was having, these intrusive thoughts I was having was actually a disorder and that it was common and that these were normal. And there obviously it didn't make it go away and make it all perfect, but I just remember feeling my body relax. There was so much freedom like a breath, fresh air <laughs> of realizing like, Oh, this is an, this is a thing. This is an actual thing that's happening to my body. This is physiological. There's all these other, there's all these things that are going into this. This is not me just being crazy. And I come from a very religious background, a very conservative religious background. Um, I'm still, I still am a practicing Christian and that's really very important to me, but growing up with that kind of mindset of this perfectionism, right? Of I've got to perform, I've got to get everything right and trying to follow that as best I could. And then having this happen, I immediately thought I have gone crazy. I am evil now. Something happened and now I am evil and having to work through that and just sort of go all the way back to the beginning of my faith and say, okay, well, what do I know about who God is and what God says about me? God said that I'm good, so I must be good. So maybe there's something else going on. And I had a really, a very strong community around me. And like you, my husband's really supportive. And I've often thought about, this was so life-threatening to me that I, I, it grieves me so deeply to think about people who don't have that community, who don't have that support, who don't understand what's going on with them and don't have resources and access to get help. And that was part of why I started this podcast was because even though I'm not a professional, I wanted this to sort of be a toolkit for people to come and listen to and recognize, oh, maybe that's what I'm going through. Maybe that's what is happening with me and help them take a step forward to try and seek help for themselves. And that solidarity is huge. Like you're saying now, you remember that feeling. You remember that breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're doing that for people. And I think now, you know, we had talked about this a little bit before the podcast started, but like now is the time to be getting that information out there because mm-hmm. especially with the pandemic and COVID, you know, like you said, OCD is already so isolating, then throw a pandemic on top of it and people are struggling right now. And so even just the simple thing that like other people are out there, other people have gone through it. I mean, even now I'm three years, you know, out of my depths of it, a year and a half out of therapy. And it still gives me comfort to hear you say that like, yeah, I had a hard time being alone with my child because that was my issue too. Like it, 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 the solidarity is invaluable. And so yeah, people need it. And especially, like I said, now more than ever. 
yeah, it's, we need this so much. And with everybody being on their computers and using Zoom and using all of this stuff right now, I think in some ways that has been the benefit is that people are, because they're online so much, they're, they're, they're looking maybe more than they would have before. And um, did you say that you have a podcast too? I do. Yeah. So I, I think that that has been, like you said, like, I think a lot of therapists are being forced to quote unquote, cause I actually kind of like it. I don't feel like it was a forced, forced thing. Um, but as a result of being more tele, we are, we've been having to kind of move our resources to a more online platform. And so, so yeah, so I started at the beginning of the pandemic, I started, um, a podcast. It's called All the Hard Things um, on all podcast platforms, and it's all about OCD and exposure and response prevention, which is the gold standard treatment for OCD. So, so yeah, lots of really good resources on there. Um, I really love teaching and getting the. My big thing as a therapist, uh, kind of my style is to teach people who I work with to eventually become their own therapists. I think that you know, therapy isn't something that you want to do forever, maybe have in your back pocket. But I mean, eventually I want people to have the skills to be able to do things mm -hmm. on their own. Um, I always say to my members at NoCD, like I am all about giving out fishing poles instead of fish. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of good fishing poles over on that podcast. Again, it's called All the Hard Things. But I also, like you had mentioned, there aren't a lot of specialists out there who specialize in OCD. And it's so critically important when you have OCD or if you feel like you have OCD, it is critical to see someone who specializes in obsessive compulsive disorder treatment and ideally who does exposure and response prevention because I have a podcast episode about this too, talk therapy, just general talk therapy that's very kind of unstructured and doesn't have a clear beginning middle end it's really just this like warm non-judgmental and empathic person while that might be great for other issues or for other transitions for OCD it's actually not helpful it's actually it can be detrimental for a lot of reasons um and so I'll just say too like having said that, I saw kind of a, a general talk therapist for more of my OCD, uh, for more of my postpartum related issues mm -hmm. and just like general mom support type stuff. But I did exposures myself. Like I specifically had to do exposures where I spent increasingly longer periods of time with my son alone, where I reduced or resisted compulsions, like checking the clock to see what time my husband was coming home mm -hmm. three years later. And I still like, I do not ask my husband when he's coming home because that was always a really big thing for me. I needed to know exactly when he would be home. I would calculate the drive time in my head. I would look up to see the traffic from where he worked here and calculate when he would be home by the minute because it was like this, okay, cool. I'm in the clear. Like as soon as I heard the garage door open, it was like, cool, I'm in the clear. Like if anything bad happens, like he will protect me. It will protect the baby. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. That was very much my, um, my safe object. And, you know, I would rely without him knowing I was using him to perform compulsions in a lot of ways. Um, and I, after I had my son, I think the thing that was so devastating for me was that suddenly I was no longer comfortable being with him or my daughter alone. And my daughter was five, almost six. And I had worked through all of that with her. And that was also what was so hurtful and was pushing my mood down even further was because I was so sad that this thing, this beautiful experience I thought I was going to have being at home with my children and homeschooling my daughter 
I had all these visions in my head of how great that was going to be because I was like, I've already worked through all this stuff. I've been there. I'm good. And it was worse um, by a million times than it had been just with her. And thankfully, you know, because of the community around me and being proactive, I was able to get the medication that I needed and I was able to get into um, therapy with someone who specializes in OCD, who I still see regularly. And that really saved my life and being able to start working on those exposures really early was helpful. Um, and my, I remember that I had to take my daughter to summer camp and this was, we put her in summer camp so that I could continue seeing doctors and therapists and getting what I needed. And I remember that I was terrified to take her in the car alone. I was so scared. And my, my counselor said to me, she said, Wendy, I just want you to do one thing while you're driving, because what I was doing was I was fixating on where my hands were at all times. Yeah. It was, you know, this, well, what if I touch her in the wrong way or something like that? What if I accidentally just like lose control of myself and harm her? And so I would just keep my hands gripping around the steering wheel. And she said, okay, I want you while you're driving just to reach back, pat her on the knee and say, Hey baby, I hope you have fun at summer camp today. And I was like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Can't. <laughs> it was so hard, but I did it. And I remember even just that small thing that I'm going to get emotional. That small so thing for you that, in that moment. It was so, but it was so powerful in that one moment of just telling my brain, this is not a threat. You know, the reason I'm having these fears is because I love my daughter so much and because I so deeply want her to feel protected and safe. And my brain is trying to tell me that I'm the threat. And I knew all of that. And being able to just do that one little exposure gave me just enough of a boost to try another exposure and then another one and then another one. And now, you know, of course, because of the pandemic, we've been at home. But before that, I was at home with both of my kids and doing great. And I, I remember thinking I would never get here. I would never, ever get here. And, um, so if you wouldn't mind, can you talk to me a little bit about exposure response prevention and all of those, you know, those treatments that you said are, you know, the gold standard for OCD, because I got an email actually from someone last week who was asking me about my experience with them and saying that a friend had told her that ERP was actually really dangerous. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, if your friend doesn't have OCD or is not a professional, no, please don't listen to them. So mm -hmm. I would love for you to explain more about that for people, because I think there's a lot of people who are confused about it. Yeah, absolutely. So exposure and response prevention or ERP is it's the gold standard treatment for OCD. And it's actually really effective for a lot of other anxiety disorders too. So trauma, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety, so basically what it requires is for, there, we, we, we know that OCD is a two-part problem, right? So we have obsessions and we have compulsions. Even for people who think or believe that they have just like pure O, quote unquote, and they can only really identify the obsessions, there's usually some compulsion there, even if it's just as simple and generic as avoidance, which I avoid stuff every day. We all avoid stuff, right? So usually a, a therapist who is educated in this and specializes in it will be able to help you identify that there are compulsions and that there are obsessions. So two-part problem requires a two-part solution. So you need, you know, you have these obsessions and compulsions, you need a two-part solution, which is the exposures and then also the response or the ritual prevention. Okay. Um, so the exposure piece is where you work with a therapist. It's also, I mean, 
Obviously, I would want everybody to do this with the guidance and the supervision of a therapist, but of course, these skills are things that it's, it's more so a lifestyle. You could always try to challenge yourself in your own ways, you know, as well, even outside of therapy. Um, but essentially, exposures are just anxiety-provoking situations that you put yourself in. Mm -hmm. um, and so ideally, you would work, you know, research shows that flooding, so doing things that are, say, a 10 out of a 10 on your anxiety rating scale, um, so like the worst case scenario possible, um, research shows that that isn't effective in the long term. And so what's more effective actually is to work low and slow. So starting things that are like challenging but manageable is what we would say in therapy. So if we use a zero to 10 scale, we would want to start with uh, exposures that are maybe on the three or four range. Um, so identifying things that are just challenging for you, um, things that kind of are triggering or provoke that fear, anxiety, or that urge to engage in certain rituals or compulsions or anxiety reducing behaviors. An example for me, it's not necessarily OCD related, it's just, you know, kind of phobia related maybe. Um, I don't like bees. So bees right. is my thing, I don't like bees. An exposure for me, an example of that would be to go outside and lay in the grass in the summer. So it's an anxiety provoking situation. Now we also, we can't just do exposures because if we just do exposures, but then ritualize afterwards, it's not going to be effective. If I just lay outside in the grass, but I'm constantly checking to see if there are bees around me, or if I just get up and run away as soon as I see one, I'm not really going to get better. So yeah. we need to do the ritual or the response prevention piece too. And what that means is during, you know, before, during, and after these anxiety provoking events, we need to make sure that you're not engaging in any anxiety reduction strategies. Yeah. So I'm not, while I'm laying outside in the grass, you know, I'm experiencing the anxiety of having bees. Maybe I'm going to get stung. Um, and I'm just letting myself sit there and be anxious. I'm not checking to see if bees are all around me. I'm not, you know, like protecting myself and kind of like hunching inward. I don't have my husband nearby just in case there's a bee somewhere. Um, and so, you know, an example with the postpartum stuff that we've kind of been talking about exposure would be the driving, right? Like you said, the driving and, you know, pushing your hand back and patting your daughter on the knee and saying, I hope you have a really good day at summer camp. That was the exposure. Now the ritual prevention was probably something along the lines of like one, not avoiding that. Right. So not, right postponing that or, you know, other things. I'm just going to guess, you know, ritual prevention there would be like not reassuring yourself afterwards. Like, okay, I didn't do exactly. anything. Cool. Uh, yeah. You're not going back and trying to relive it and remember every single, everything. Was yeah, that, that mental reviewing, like mental rituals are really, really tricky for people, um, but they're still just as responsive to therapy. Um, it just takes a little bit more hypervigilance and determination and, um, to kind of catch them and practice catching them over time. So, so yeah, you truly just kind of let yourself be anxious. You remove the ritual response part of it and you sit with the anxiety. And so as you do that and you continue to do it, you don't just do it once, but you continue to do it, uh, that two things happen. And so there's the habituation model underlies exposure therapy, which is that you essentially just get used to it. So um, I think of it like when you jump into a pool and it's really cold at first, you stay yeah. in the pool and eventually it gets warmer, right? The water itself doesn't get warmer. Rather, your body gets used to that because your body has a natural tendency and drive to adjust to things. That's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah. And so when you, your body, you know, when you're hot, you sweat so that you cool down. When you're cold, you shiver so that you warm up. So your body is constantly trying to 
get you to a good spot. It's, it's constantly trying to, you know, manage whatever it is that's extreme. It doesn't like extremes. So when you're super, super anxious like that, say you're at an eight out of a 10 on that zero to 10 scale, your body would naturally come down if we just let it, right? So your body has a natural response system called the parasympathetic nervous system that naturally, you know, it's called the rest and digest system. It kind of reduces or makes you come down from that fight or flight stage. It's just that we're typically too anxious and too intolerant of that distress that we jump out of the pool. And so as we jump out of the pool, we don't really get used to the water and we don't want to go back in because it was so cold. Yeah. So that's the habituation model. That's where you just simply get used to it. And then what you're saying, what you're have, you've kind of alluded to is more like the inhibitory learning model. Um, and they, a lot of people in the field are like, no, it's habituation or no, it's inhibitory learning. I think both of them can happen. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think they both are awesome. And I think they are not mutually exclusive. Um, but in, uh, inhibitory learning just simply states that like you learn that you can do this. Like you learn hey, I pat my daughter on the knee and I, I mean, she's still alive. I'm here. Like I'm still here. I don't, I don't know for sure if I did something that I don't like, but the cops haven't gotten me right. Like she's, I'm, I'm spending more time alone with my family and everyone's still here. The habituation part of it was, was definitely, that was definitely part of it too. I think because there were certainly times where incredibly uncomfortable, but would just breathe and just say to myself, I know what is real, you know, sort of doing some of those mindfulness techniques. I know what is real. I know what day it is. Um, I feel the counter on my hands. I feel the feet, my feet on the floor and just letting myself come down off that, that roller coaster. (laughs) It's like, it's way, way, way high. My anxiety's through the roof right now. And if I give myself a minute or two, it will come down. I've got to be able to sit with that discomfort. And that, that was really probably the most challenging thing for me. I think that I, I would push myself to do those exposures, but it was preventing myself from, you know, refusing to do the compulsive behavior afterwards and allowing the anxiety to come down from that real way up high level that it was, was, was really challenging, but yes, you get used to it. You get to a point where it spikes, but then it comes down super fast and then it just stops spiking. At least for me, it would get to that place. And you know, the time is going to be different for everybody. But after my son was born, he was born in May and my worst moments were probably at the beginning of June. And I, that was kind of when I started really doing exposures regularly. And by September, I was, I was doing okay. I was through the worst of it. And then probably by Christmas, I was totally fine being with my kids again. I would still have, I mean, the intrusive thoughts are still there, right? Those obsessions right. still pop up all the time. It's that now I have the skills and have worked through all of that enough to know, as you said, I can do those things on my own regularly now. And so even though I'm still seeing my counselor every Friday, I practice doing those things all the time because my OCD always lives with me. And I never know when I'm going to have an intrusive thought. Maybe that's the same kind I've had before or a brand new one, because maybe this is a brand new situation, but now I have the skills to be able to work through that in a healthy way. And I I love that you say that because I think that's one big myth. And, you know, one big thing that I want people to know as they embark on their recovery journey or, you know, whatever part of their journey they're in, 
you can't get rid of intrusive thoughts. Um, and that's not just because you have OCD. It's not like you have this scarlet letter on you forever and you're broken. The reality is, is that everybody has intrusive thoughts that they've done tons and tons of research to suggest that everybody has intrusive thoughts. I think in some instances, some research articles suggest 99.9% of the population. I think that 1.1% of the population is either lying or they don't understand the question. Like, sure. We have, we have hundreds of thousands of thoughts a day. And I, I always say like the same brains that came up with the iPhone 12 or came up with the plane before there was a plane are the same brains that are capable of creating these wild scenarios that never happened. The door that we locked that we're not quite sure if we locked the, the thing that you were afraid of doing to your family that you aren't actually really going to do. Um, and so we all have intrusive thoughts and the problem isn't the intrusive thought at all. The problem is not the worry or the uncertainty or the intrusive image or thought or idea or impulse. We all have those. What is the problem and what's different for people who have OCD is the significance that they take from that thought. Yeah. And so they research shows that people who have OCD, they can't just have a thought, acknowledge it and let it go. They take, they, they tend to take responsibility for that thought. Oh my gosh, I just had that thought that I could harm my baby in the bathtub. That must, what does that mean about me? Like I'm such a horrible mom that I had that thought. No one else has that thought. We also tend to judge the thought, right? So instead of just non-judgmentally having a thought and allowing it to come and go as any other thought, we tend to judge these intrusive thoughts as being bad or disgusting or irresponsible or unsafe. Um, and when, when really these thoughts are just thoughts, they're just kind of like bunk thoughts, just like any other bunk thought. Uh, we also tend to want to control the thoughts, right? Like, I don't want to have any of those thoughts about my child. I don't want to have any thoughts of harming her. I don't want to have anything. I just want to have those good thoughts. Like, this is, I can only have the good thoughts. Yeah. Um, and obviously a ton of other things. But yeah, like you said, you're going to have the intrusive thoughts forever, not because you have a scarlet letter on you forever, but because intrusive thoughts aren't the problem. It's the significance that you draw from it yeah. and the tendency to have to get rid of that anxiety somehow. So as we you know, go through treatment or you're doing it on your own, the goal isn't to eliminate intrusive thoughts. Hopefully that they do become less frequent. Hopefully they do become less troublesome for you. But the goal really is to reduce and resist the, the ritualistic response that you're having so that you can start to rewire the behaviors first. And then naturally the thoughts also start to become more realistic. And then naturally, I think over time too, the feelings themselves start to change. So you don't feel as anxious with your family. You feel more confident being alone with them, but it takes time and the behaviors really have to come first. Yes, that's so true. The behaviors, yes, the behaviors have to come first because those feelings are going to come later. And I think if we're relying on our feelings so much to, to sort in this instance, especially when things are really severe, my feelings were all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> my feelings were, I'm terrible. I'm bad. I'm all of these things. And, and having experienced OCD making you a better mother, I think it's given me an opportunity now as my daughter is getting older, she's seven years old and we've, I've talked to her so openly in an age appropriate way about having OCD and what that's like for me that now she comes to me whenever she has a thought that's bothering her and she'll say, mom, I'm having this intrusive thought and it's bugging me and we'll talk about it. And I'll tell her, okay, well, you know, your brain is a machine and it's, it's processing information all day long. And you know, you're bothered about that thought or what it means, but the truth is it's your brain taking. So she was reading a book and 
I could tell that this scenario that was in her head was maybe rooted in some of the content in this book, this fantasy book she was reading. And I said, you know, you've, you've been reading this cool book that you like, but it's also got a lot of real intense kind of fantasy situations. And you're also a really creative person and you love your parents. And so your brain is just sort of meshing all of these things together that you've been thinking. And, you know, I said, and you know, what's true, you know, that, you know, mommy and daddy love you and that you're safe here and trying to sort of walk her through, sorry, there's a really loud plane going over <laughs> my house. Um, trying to sort of walk her through, you know, that this is normal, that your brain is just processing information and that that thought is just the result of your brain processing information. And that it doesn't mean anything about you personally and that it's okay that you had that thought. And I'm really glad you talked to me about it. Cause now that now we can talk about it together. Cause I didn't have that. You know, I just was growing up thinking, Oh my gosh, I have to be in control of every single, not just my actions, but every single thought too. Um, so I was forever berating myself. I was really good at that. Um, so by the time I hit my twenties, of course, <laughs> that was kind of, I felt like for me, my, my counselor says to me that, you know, she said, there's a lot of biological factors and environmental factors. And, you know, she said, maybe you were born with your brain is kind of a gun that's sort of locked and loaded, but then you have these circumstances in your life, maybe your religious upbringing or whatever, anything that you might experience in your life that sort of pulls the trigger. And now you're dealing with OCD. And she was like, but none of those things are things that we can't work with and learn to live with in a healthy way. Yeah. So what you're mentioning, you know, first of all, you handled that with your child so well. <laughs> yeah. And my favorite part about that is like, I have them too. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think that's awesome. And I think that there's no better response. If anyone out there is listening and they have kiddos or, you know, even just therapists listening or whomever, and, and they hear someone else, even an adult, right? Like even if an adult kind of a friend, a loved one, whatever, comes to you with that, you know, confession of kind of an intrusive thought for the first time, they're really confused about it. And they just are clearly wanting support. Like that is a great way. That's a great script. <laughs> um, so that's really, really awesome. Um, and then, yeah, what you were talking about is the, the diathesis stress model. So essentially, yeah. So, um, especially with OCD, but with lots of other disorders too, we find that psychological disorders kind of results, um, from a mix between this inherent vulnerability that you get from just being born. So a genetic or biological predisposition. Um, and it's kind of like a gun. Yeah. Like it, it's loaded, but it may fire, it may not. And that really depends on environmental stressors. So there's really no cure or, um, well, there is no cure, but there's really no cause of OCD. Right. So sometimes people will say like, I was bullied in high school and that caused my OCD. It certainly could have been the trigger, right, for it. It could have been that thing that kind of elicited or, like, turned that light switch on. Um, but there was always going to be some, like, vulnerability there. Um, so there's really no one cause of it. And as a result, there's no cure either. And I think that circles back to our previous conversation where we talked about how we're not going to cure intrusive thoughts. Like, that's just part of life. And so it does, you know require a lifestyle, which it seems like you're totally rocking and thank you for saying <laughs> you're so kind. I'm so, I'm so glad that, that you feel like that was, um, a healthy response for her because it, it, you know, it's, it's tough. And the thing is, is that I want, I want my daughter and anybody listening, I just feel so strongly about wanting people to feel like that these things are normal 
that it might not, it might not be, you know, something that we're responding to in a way that's healthy for us, but the thoughts are normal and our brains are in many cases, our brains are doing what brains do, you know, they're processing information. And I think that there's so much, like you said, in our culture that just doesn't really, it doesn't really prepare us to understand how our bodies function, I think. And so I just wanted my daughter to feel like, you know, she's a human being and she's experiencing something that's a typical human experience and that that's okay. And that she's allowed to have that experience and it doesn't mean anything about her and that she can feel safe coming to talk to me about it because I, I vividly remember, you know, my first real upsetting intrusive thought. And I panicked. I remember just wanting to crawl out of my skin, just running around the house pacing because I didn't understand it. And I immediately, you know, moralized it and thought, this is something about me. I have gone wrong somehow. What is happening? And crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, re I remember that feeling so vividly. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I do want to hear a little bit more um, about other treatment options. I think you mentioned like residential and, you know, we talked about medication and things like that. So if you wanted to share anything like that with listeners, cause I know a lot of people have questions about that stuff too. Sure. So the biggest thing that I'll say about medications is, well, a couple of things. So there are medications that have been shown to be effective for the treatment of OCD and for other anxiety related disorders. I usually say though, that medications, when it comes to OCD recovery, but medications will get you to the starting line, but they won't run the race for you. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely do medications and they will, you know, I take medication for anxiety. Um, mm -hmm. and I feel like it kind of lets it kind of, it will kind of allow the therapist interventions and the, you know, teachings sink in a little bit easier. Won't yeah. seem like it's such a fog, but the medication won't run the race for you. Um, meaning that it's not going to change anything in your lifestyle without you changing anything in your lifestyle. So if you continue to take these medications, you might feel a little bit better, but if you continue to maintain the same cycle of intrusive thought, anxiety, compulsion, temporary relief, and then back to intrusive thoughts again, mm -hmm. nothing changes. So it really does require, even if you do medications, which again, I take them, people take them and benefit from them all the time. They're not necessary if you do a really great job and you're really dedicated to the exposure and response prevention uh, treatments, but it can be super helpful for people, especially if they've been doing the therapy and they've been following all their treatment recommendations and they're still not helpful, or if they feel like that they need that little additional kind of push or that additional edge to kind of give them that confidence and help to get them to that starting line. Um, now with that said, I will also say that there are some medications that we would not want someone to be taking while they are, um, you know, I think in general for anxiety or OCD, but definitely not when they're in active treatment. So um, things like benzodiazepines are really negatively contraindicated when you're doing exposure and response prevention. And that's simply because it dulls your anxiety, right? And exposure therapy is meant by nature to increase your anxiety. And so if we're doing these exposures to increase your anxiety very purposefully, which is part of the whole nature of it, it's part of the treatment. In order to get over something, you have to go through it, but you're taking a benzodiazepine, you know, right before, you're not gonna get the full effect. Um, I mean, what, what would be a benzodiazepine? What would like be Xanax, like a, like an as needed. So, okay. um, 
you know, things that like I take sertraline, the ones that you had mentioned to are things that you take every day um, versus the things that you take, like, okay, I'm really anxious. You're allowed to take this like as needed, like a PRN type thing. So that would not be good. And that works. And that leads me to my other point, which is substance use, right? So it would be the equivalent of like of drinking or using drinking or other drugs to manage your anxiety. So it, it would, it would, you know, in the short term, it would make you feel better, but it, it, it doesn't help in the long run. And if anything, it does make you feel worse because it works through that avoidance, right? So mm -hmm. really good to get rid of anxiety in that moment. And now next time, whether you're conscious of it or not, you're going to feel the need to kind of go back to that, whether it was that glass of wine or that can of beer or the benzodiazepine or the Xanax, like we had talked about. So moral of the story is medications can be super, super effective if they're the right ones and they're obviously cleared by your psychiatrist and all that good stuff. Want to make sure that you're staying away though, ideally from benzodiazepines, things that you take as needed, quote unquote, like PRNs. I'm really anxious right now. I'm having a panic panic attack and I take this pill to calm me down. That's not good. Um, but the ones that you take every day, like in the morning at the same scheduled time, regardless of your anxiety, those are generally fine. Um, and then substances, you know, for the same reasons that I talked about, just wanting to make sure that you are truly letting yourself have the experience going through this difficult process. So like you said, you can one, get used to it, and two, have that corrective learning take place. Like my anxiety can come down without me having to use substances or have to take this, you know, PRN, this as Xanax or whatever. So obviously the highest level of care, like the most significant need if someone were at risk of harming themselves or others, that's inpatient. So yeah. that's what you typically think of. Like if you're, if someone is needing in the hospital, that's really just for stabilization purposes to kind of get you to where you're safe again so that you can, you know, go back and, and be present for treatment. The next highest level of care is residential. So that's what I was saying, where you go and you literally pack your bags and you go and you live for 20, 24 seven for our average length of stay was 45 to 60 days. So you're really just immersed in that whole treatment environment. You're around other people who are going through it with you, which can be really, really helpful. Um, and you're just getting a really high dose of that behavioral intervention. There's Rogers Memorial Hospital, and then there's also McLean um, over on the East Coast. And then next level down, if that's not necessarily something that someone needs, but they still need really, really high levels of care, there also exists partial hospitalization programs. They're called PHPs. It's pretty much like a full-time job. So you would still come home on the evenings, come home on the weekends, but you can anticipate dedicating about 40 hours a week to your treatment. Okay. Uh, the next one lower than that is IOP or intensive outpatient. That's kind of like a part-time job. So about half the time. Um, and then there's the traditional outpatient therapy. So this is usually what people think of. When they're thinking of going to therapy, going to an office, seeing someone once or twice a week. Um, and that's the lowest level of care. And so those are all the things that are available to people. I think sometimes people think that it's either hospital or outpatient. And there's like so many other options out there. I love that. I mean, this is really helpful for me to know because yeah. I, I didn't, I wasn't aware that there were so many levels in between. Yeah. And not just for OCD, for depression, for anything. And so for OCD in particular, um, a good resource to see is available for you, not just outpatient, but any other levels of care too, would be the International OCD Foundation. So yes. that's, yep, that's, 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 that's IOCDF.org. Um, 
And what else? Yeah. So I have a podcast, like I said, if you're wanting to learn more about, you know, this therapy or OCD in general, um, if you're a therapist and you want to learn more about how to apply the intervention, I think there's a lot of good things on there too. So it's called all the hard things on all podcast platforms. And then I have kind of an educational Instagram as well over at Jenna.overbaugh. Um, Again, all OCD and exposure and response prevention stuff. And especially now with the pandemic and everything, I want to make sure everyone knows about no CD. So, so yeah, the app is free, totally free. Download it. There are ways that you can plug in your own exposures. There are educational videos. There's an in-app support community. We also offer free support groups um, that are led by no CD therapists. Um, I run some of them, so and you don't have to be doing therapy to actually like through no CD to actually take part in it, which is really really That's awesome. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, and so but just download the app, and you can down you can access the link from there for the support groups. They're free, and you don't need to be affiliated with no CD at all. Like totally no gimmicks, no catches. Um, and then yeah, if you are if anyone out there is needing therapy services. Um, it's a really great protocol. We've done studies on our protocol at NoCD. We do exposure and response prevention. You'll be able to work with a therapist who's trained in the specialization of exposure and response prevention and tons and tons of other things. So it's a really great resource out there in addition to everything else. And hopefully that's like a lot of good information for you guys. Out there. Yes. And I, again, to everybody who's listening, I am going to be sure to include all of this in the show notes and have links for everything. Jenna's Instagram, no CD, her podcast, everything. Oh my gosh. This has been really incredible. I have learned a lot. I'm sure listeners have learned a lot and I really, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah, well, we had, we had fun and, and doing this is always nice for me too. Like the solidarity that you're providing other women and other people out there is just really incredible. So thank you so much for everything that you do and ditto. Y'all, isn't she incredible? I learned so much during our conversation, and I feel certain that a lot of you are going to benefit from what Jenna offered in this episode. If you want to get connected with her or with another counselor who specializes in OCD, please go check out NoCD from a free 15-minute video consultation. That's N-O-C-D. As Jenna mentioned, you can just download the NoCD app and get started with a counselor who understands this disorder and can help get you on the path to doing what we talk a lot about here which is learning to live and thrive with obsessive compulsive disorder. Jenna is on NoCD and you can also find her on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh where she creates fun, engaging, and informative content about OCD and mental health. You guys are going to want to give her a follow there, I promise. All of this and the other resources we mentioned in the episode will be found in the show notes to be sure to check those out. I also want to mention that if you want to learn more about my OCD journey, you can pick up my latest book, Good Enough, anywhere you buy your books. You can find it online and in stores at Barnes & Noble. If you grab a copy, please be sure to let me know what you think by leaving a review because it helps new readers find it. And finally, you can always connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Wendy Nunnery. That's Wendy with an I at the end. And follow the podcast on Instagram at SoOCDPodcast. That's So with three O's. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great weekend and I'll chat with you guys later.